Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam, pharmacists to care. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Discam Medical Monday. I'm uh, sitting in for Kathy Kayla. And my special guest today is Dr. Morris Hockman. And normally I'm sitting on the other side of his desk as a patient of his. So um, today you're sitting on that side and I'm asking the questions. This is daunting. (laughs) (laughs) It's really so good to have you here. We're going to our topic today is cochlear implants. And Dr. Hockman has just been showing me a whole lot of different devices. Well, it is very exciting. I would just like to start with this quote. The The thing about hearing loss is that no one can see it. Most people are so impatient, they just assume that the person with hearing loss is being rude or slow-witted. Is this your findings of people who do have hearing loss? Absolutely. I struggle with this pretty much every day, um, where people are reluctant to even older people to have hearing aids because there's a stigma that if you have a hearing aid, you're kind of old and decrepit and on the way down, on the downhill slope. And um, I think it comes from the problem of that term deaf and dumb, which goes way, 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 way back probably to to biblical times, Mm -hmm. where it was assumed that if you were deaf, you were dumb, you were stupid, and you couldn't be educated. And in fact, even in halakha, you actually were exempt from all the things. You couldn't serve in the the mishkan, and you... um, couldn't and, and you didn't have to do most of the mitzvot. Only centuries later when they realized that deaf people, this I've discussed with the rabbis, particularly uh, David Shaw, um, only many years, many centuries later when they realized that deaf people actually are educable and they kind of got normal brains like anybody else, they just have this one defect, that you could, you could actually educate deaf people. And in fact, from then on, the rabbonim said they had to do the mitzvot. Oh, is that so? That's yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. But that stigma con- continues. And in fact, um, it, it even goes down to, to fundraising. It's much easier to fundraise for, for more cool things like blind people or, or people in a wheelchair than people who are deaf. Because most people, as you said, are irritated. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the aunt at a bat mitzvah, a bat mitzvah, sitting in the corner and she can't handle the sound. And uh, if she was blind, somebody would go and get her food. But because she's deaf, people don't want to talk to her because it's a real hassle. You can lose your voice trying to talk to somebody who's deaf in a loud noise with the band's playing. And they end up being isolated. They end up not coming. They end up – and it precipitates a whole lot of psychosocial problems. Absolutely. You know, as you say that, you say the, the old aunt, I actually have written here that my aunt lived in a, a very fancy um, um, retirement home in Cape Town. And she got uh, macular degeneration. And she said she actually thanked God for it because she was treated with such kindness. Everyone helped her in the dining room, wherever she was, and she could participate in conversations. So if they were having... um, a movie evening, for instance, she would still be invited and they would fill her in. But she said that she noticed that uh, deaf people were being... Uh, treated really poorly and with disdain really that people were very irritated by them and she said the older people got the more irritated they seemed to become with people who were deaf that's exactly the problem it's exactly the problem and uh, I spent a lot of time uh, persuading people to to just to have a trial with a hearing aid the the older Mm. older folk Mm. because 
it's a thing that's got on them, you know, it's developed with them gradually. It's, it's kind of crept up on them. And they, they often say, well, people don't enunciate anymore. You know, what's the American accents on television? That's the whole problem. But that's not true. You know, your ears are just naturally have a, have a progressive hearing loss in your high pitches. That makes it extremely difficult to listen in high, in, in background noise because you, lo- you lose all the consonants. And they often come back and they're amazed at how, you know, especially with the, 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 the current models of, of hearing aids, how they can cope with that type of environment. And they have to give themselves a chance. And um, the, the uh, I had another thought which actually just went out of my head about that. Um, um, so it, it's... it's the, oh, the other thing I wanted to mention, which is very important, that in fact, especially in the older generation, that hearing helps to prevent dementia. It keeps your brain alive. It mm. keeps your brain younger. Good heavens. So we, when people say, you know, you should carry on working, you should play bridge, you should do all these things, it's really important to be hearing properly. If you're hearing properly, you're going to delay that onset. And there, there's very significant research out now um, that, that encourages early use of hearing aids in high tone deafness because that that has a significant effect on keeping your brain young that's that's fascinating because uh, just yesterday someone said to me that they had read that if you learn something new each day you also slow down that progression mm. towards dementia so i mean if it's if it's hearing or it's very but your interesting hearing is your entree to learning mm. as you mentioned about your the the onto's getting macular generation it, it brings the, brings out the point that if you can see somebody but you can't hear them, unless they're writing to you or you can lip read them, miles will not be there mm-hmm. because hearing is the most important part of communicating. Most people think, could imagine that how terrible it would be to be blinded and, and undoubtedly that don't denigrate that at all. But you need to hear to be able to communicate. And be part of this world because, yeah, you know, I, I had a program a few weeks ago with Professor uh, Jeannie Zardel-Wolf, uh, Rudolph, on, um, on music and the healing powers of music and, and how music is actually is part of the universe. It's the sound of the universe. And that's uh, what's missing if you're deaf. That one of the nicest kind of presents I ever got from a patient was an Andre Rieu disc of his waltzes from his Strauss Orchestra when she said she could now hear them and she thought it would be nice if I heard <laughs> which was really very touching. <laughs> that is very I still touching. gives me a lump in my throat. But that, that is, you know, if you want to talk about getting nachos from your patients, I guess. That, yeah, <laughs> that, absolutely. That's what it was. Well, yes, you can. Um, he's just having to answer the phone quickly. Just hang on. He's just done an, an operation. Hello? Chrissy? Oh, okay, that's fine. No problem. Okay, I told her you might cancel her. Okay, great stuff. Okay, okay, ciao, bye. Okay, that's one of the uh, problems of, of being a specialist, I think, which takes me to our next question. What made you decide to specialize as an ENT? Why not something else? <laughs> uh, it's actually a funny story. Um I'd always, and I can't tell you why, I always wanted to be a plastic surgeon. And uh, I, I really don't know why. Uh, my family does have doctors in it, but more accountants and, 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 uh, and uh, architects. Um, so to, in those days, way back, you had to wait a couple of years to get onto the circuit. 
So I was working at Natal Spread Hospital as a surgical re- surgical um, MO. Um, spent nearly two years there doing mainly plastic surgery and, and doing skin grafts on people who burned themselves in their huts when the kerosene lamps had fallen over and stuff. And then along came Peter Kalish, who was um, uh, th- he was now doing his first post as a junior consultant, having just qualified. And one day he said to me, "Hey, come have a look down this microscope. Have, you know what's this, you know all, you, all you're doing is doing all these burns and things. So have a look at these little ear bones down the microscope." And it was I kind of think kind of love at first sight. Is that so? <laughs> I thought this is amazing, and I and I always loved music, been involved in music, and I I'd spend my uh, I never could swat for med- at medical school without my music system going at the same time and and sound and thing made a lot of made a lot of sense to me and i just thought it'd be amazing to be able to work and i i built lots of tiny little models and things so it appealed to me to fiddle with tiny little things and to make people hear was uh sounded really cool and then um then the problem was getting onto the nt circuit but that's another whole story okay um so I actually started plastics and then changed to ENT. And we're going to actually mention just now how you're doing both at the moment, plastic surgery and uh, do you want to just tell us about that? You've just shown uh, me this incredible little device. Uh, well, I'm not actually doing the plastic surgery there. Um, it's for uh, patients or children who are born with what you call an atresia where they don't have an outer various degrees of, of the, the, the pin of the ear is missing, the ear canal is missing. And they have a very abnormal middle ear, but their cochlea is normal. So we can do two different operations. The one is to make them hear again, where we can put a thing called a vibrant sound bridge, which is a tiny little vibrating device uh, called a floating mass transducer that we can, it's about one millimeter by two millimeters that we can put onto their stapes, and then they are able to hear again via stuff transmitted by an out of external speech process, in a way similar to cochlear implants. And then we're working with a, an ENT surgeon, but he's also a plastic surgeon called Henning Frenzel from Lübeck in Germany, who does the most beautiful ear reconstructions using mm. the child's ribs. Um, and you can use an, an alternative um, uh, artificial source, but we, but we are electing to do them with the ribs. And we've done, um, in our little group, the three surgeons, three of us who are working on this, and um, we've done probably, I think, about six patients now. Um, with Henning, where we've um, done the the hearing side first, we then wait three to six months, and then we do the 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 pinna reconstruction. Oh, oh, absolutely, and fascinating. they are beautiful ears that that uh, Henning creates. He's probably one of the best people in Europe for this, and he's kind of he's part of our our team. Oh, he is part of your yeah. team, and you went to Italy, you said, to go and yeah, I learned, learn about this. Yeah, I learned, uh, went to Italy to, to learn the, the surgical side of it, the, mm-hmm. the, ear, the ear side, and, and in Austria, because the, the, what we're using comes from uh, the Medell Cochlear Implant Group in Innsbruck. So I've spent a lot of time in Innsbruck and with some of the surgeons that they use in, in Italy. So it's actually very exciting, the work that you're doing, because, you know... When you show me these devices, when I think of um, my grandmother, for instance, who had this huge hearing aid, which she used to just take off because it irritated her so much. Um, and now these tiny little 
hearing aids and cochlear implants. It's just, it's actually miraculous being in this day and age, isn't it? It is. It, it's, it's an incredible privilege to be working with all of this because we've now, with, with this more recent thing, last year or two of, of the, of the atresia repairs, we kind of can deal with the entire spectrum of hearing problems. From nerve loss to middle ear problems to um, the hear not and, and not in any way denigrating the ordinary hearing aids. I mean, the, the latest models of hearing aids are phenomenal, and with these small domes, and you don't have to have that big um, mold in your ear, mm. and the way that they can be programmed, um, nobody should not be able to hear. So they're far more comfortable. If anyone would like to ask any questions of Dr. Morris Hopman, please SMS us on 34519 or you can WhatsApp us on 061-895-1019. I have had a few questions that have come through about cochlear implants. When would you do a cochlear implant? But let's go back and please tell me about cochlear Okay, so, uh, well, um, can we just recap how you hear? Yes. Okay, so the sound will go through your external ear canal, hit your eardrum, set up a vibration on your eardrum. The three little ear bones, malleus, incus, and stapes, are a, essentially a amplification system that amplifies that vibration so that the vibrations of the stapes footplate, the third bone, are stronger than on the eardrum. The... In the middle ear is full of air. The inner ear is a fluid-filled system with three channels in it. And the vibration of the stapes footplate sets up a wave that runs into the, uh, into the ear, into the inner ear. And if you imagine a wind going over a field of wheat and the, the sheaves of wheat moving backwards and forwards, that's exactly what happens. It's the amplitude of that wave going through the, um, the, the inner ear fluid that uh, stimulates the hair cells in the middle layer of, in the middle channel of the cochlea. And those hair cells are actually nerve endings. They're the, they're the beginnings of the auditory nerve, and then they run through there, through a complicated system, up your brainstem, eventually to your auditory cortex. So anything that interrupts that, that flow of the, of the sound wave from, from the eardrum, middle ear problems, uh, um, glue ears that might need grommets, uh, problems with little ear bones, ossicles that might need a stapedectomy or other repairs, um, to the problems are that, 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 that you have with, the, um, uh, with, with those hair cells and then problems that could be beyond, uh, further along the, the, auditory, the auditory nerve. So in utero, when would those hair cells actually begin? They're functioning... Carry on, we've just have to break for an advert and you've got a call. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Uh, Dr. Hockman is very, very busy. <laughs> My guest today is Dr. Morris Hockman and we're on Discam Medical Monday and our topic is cochlear implants. You can SMS us on 34519 or you can WhatsApp us on 061 8951019 We were talking about I was asking you about in utero when when these little hair um, nerves would would actually be uh, So they're probably created. starting to develop by about the um, I'm not sure the exact week but probably in the middle trimester 
And um, by the time a baby is born, in fact, the, the, the middle ear is, is almost adult size. Huh. And uh, everything and kind of grows around it. You have a positional growth where the, 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 the temporal bone is kind of growing around the cochlea and the middle ear that's already there. Now, Jeannie um, Zadl-Rurup on, on her program was saying that one of the greatest things of babies in utero is actually their hearing. Mm. And is that That's quite you, true. Mm? Babies do hear and hear in, in utero. I'm not an expert on, on, on how that's measured, but they definitely do. They can respond to their, um, their mothers. They, they have, can learn to recognize their mother's voices. Um, if you play their Mozart, they probably they, they apparently um, become smarter. Become smarter. <laughs> um, so that definitely, yeah. Okay, so go back on to your cochlea then. When would you decide to what what ages would you actually start a cochlear well, implant? There's pretty much no um, lower limit or upper limit oh. to it. Um, it depends on diagnosis and it depends on the um, uh, the fitness of the patient and, and the anatomy that you're dealing with. So in our implant program here in Johannesburg, our youngest patient so far is six months old. Mm. Uh, in Cape Town, in, 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 in Stellenbosch, uh, Derek Valkenfeld's done a four-month-old. Mm. And um, my oldest patient is 84. Good heavens. So uh, it, it really, the, the crux of the matter is early identification in children and diagnosis. Um, that we, we know that, there, that there, this definitely is a, a, a profound hearing loss. It's amazing. We've got a, a question come through from Chris. Good morning. Which uh, audiologist does Dr. Hochman use, please, or can one go directly to him without the hearing test results? I need a cochlear implant, deaf ear following head injury. Thanks, Sue, from Chris. Can they go directly to you? They can come directly to me. And yeah. then would you then yeah. order the test? In fact, it's better that way because then we've made sure we've cleared the air out of wax and you'd be surprised how many times there's a huge chunk of wax which people didn't know about and taking that out and they can hear much better again. So it, it is good to go um, via the ENT. Although we do get lots of referrals, obviously, from the from the audiologist. And you obviously you're covered by medical aid. Mm-hmm. And I uh, see he says from head injury. Do you have many um, ear injuries because of head uh, deafness because of head injuries? We do, and they can be uh, of different forms. It depends where the injury is. Uh, the injury could have been to the middle ear, to the eardrum, um, could have ruptured an eardrum, could have disrupted ear the little ossicles. Um, it could have been a what we call a skull base fracture for a more serious thing that could have actually cut through the fracture line, um, could cut through the cochlea, could cut through the semicircular canals. Um, so we do, we do see that. And um, if he needs to get hold of you, he can get hold of Linksfield mm-hmm. Clinic and sure. they would give him sure. your number. Right. Good. Um, now, I wanted to ask you with the cochlear implant, is it, it you put it inside and then what is outside? Okay. So, yeah, that's an uh, important thing we need to just put that, that explain that mm-hmm. cochlear implant essentially has two components there's the outer speech processor and the internal receiver stimulator so the outer processor listens to the environmental sound speech or whatever else is going on 
um, computes that into into its into its components, and then creates an electrical stimulus, which is depending on which implant we're using. Say it's a cochlear implant, we have twenty four different electrodes that are uh, arranged. Um, so we know the um, uh, the the place pitch placement in, inside an ear from high pitches in the basal tone to low pitches in the top. So this computer then arranges to fire off its electrodes uh, it's in, in the manner that's going to stimulate the hair cells from low pitches at the top to high pitches at the bottom. That information is transmitted via a little aerial to the implanted device via an FM signal, and that FM signal is reconverted by another little mini-computer inside the implanted device, mm. and that then feeds it down into the electrodes that we put into inside the inner ear. And that has to happen as fast as you normally would hear speech happening when somebody's talking to you. So it's an incredible device. The, the who, who actually started this device? How was it founded? It was founded in, in Australia um, and, uh, by, and in, in Melbourne. And at the same time, it was being developed in, in Austria, um, and by the Medell people, and also, in fact, in America, in, in California, mm. uh, with, uh, with the, the House group. Um, so when did you start it here? We started in 1993. As early as that? Yeah. Um, they became uh, freely available in 1986 in, in, from Australia, and shortly afterwards from Medell in, 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 uh, in Austria, in Innsbruck. And uh, the... Uh, uh, so at that, that point in South in uh, the first implant program in South Africa was in Stellenbosch at Derek Wachenfeld. And people were going, having to travel from Johannesburg and all over, all, all over the whole country to, um, to Stellenbosch. And the problem is that the initial switch on and programming takes maybe three months or longer. So it, it was a, <coughs> a big deal for parents to have to, and patients to have to actually go there and stay there. And, um, out of our ENT, uh, the, the, uh, we have a, a journal club in, 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 in Johannesburg of ENT surgeons, and um, it's a mixture of, of the, the state doctors and, and the ENTs in private practice. And Herman Hammersma, uh, who was he had been the prof of ENT in Pretoria, and now I'd moved to, to Johannesburg, and uh, he was in fact my mentor then. And he said, "You know, it's time that we started an ENT program here." So we didn't have to send everybody to Cape Town. And uh, he pretty much stimulated the whole thing. And then we had to say, who's going to do it? And he said, okay, you're going to do it. And uh, uh, with the help, in fact, of uh, Clinic Holdings, uh, and we started doing our surgery with in, in their group uh, with um, uh, um, Herwitz. Mr. Herwitz actually funded our initial um, startup, startup of our program. And uh, I went to Australia for three weeks with with my audiologist, and we learned to do it, and then started off with adults, and then progressed to to children. Were you amazed at the results? It is. It's 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 actually quite miraculous. It's uh, it, it's it's one of the amazing things that uh, in medicine that that uh, to see the results. You know, we don't often see the results, long-term results of our mm-hmm. patients. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're an orthopedic surgeon, you may put in a hip placement and the patient's happy 
has physio goes home, you may see them occasionally for a follow-up, but pretty much never, may, may not see them again. Uh, in, in Palm Program, we see these patients forever. They, we, they're part of our program. There was something I actually wanted to ask you, talking about seeing them. I see another message has come through. We'll pick it up in a minute. Um, do you, for instance, if you put it into the six-month-old baby, do you have to keep um, redoing it, and uh, or does it remain the same size, or, or what happens? Well, going back to what I said initially, that you, your ear, you grow around your cochlea and your middle ear. So luckily enough, Unless there's been some damage to to the cochle- to the implant, um, or there's been some amazing change that we that we think is worthwhile explanting and putting in a new one, uh, that could be there forever. Good heavens! And then you mentioned that it was part of FM. Um, so on the outside, it's tuned into. Well, there's a. They actually have the, the implant companies had to get a radio license to go across these millimeters <laughs> of scu- of scalp. Yes. So that they can transmit from the the outer aerial to the inner receiver, and uh, that that's uh, yeah, they, they. that is absolutely mm. fascinating. But as I was saying, in our program, we we've now had the privilege of seeing people that we implanted when they were when they were young kiddies or babies, and have now graduated from university, huh. and that's uh, that's been an amazing experience. I mean, absolutely. Just going back to that deaf and dumb. Is it possible for a deaf person to learn to speak even without a hearing aid? Okay, that, the, 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 the whole question there relates to a thing called neuroplasticity. So from the time you're born to about the time you're six years old, your brain, the, the circuits in your brain are literally getting switched on and developed so that you learn to appreciate sound as speech. And unfortunately, if you've never been amplified, if you've never had amplification and your brain has never been stimulated, um, you know, beyond six, you would never actually, you'd, you would have something, if we implanted an older adult, um, teenager or, a, or an adult who had never had amplification, they would get maybe environmental sound, they could hear a doorbell ring, they could hear, uh, would be aware of a car hooting, but they would never learn to un- understand that as speech. That's the problem. What because a loss these, for them. Th- those parts of your brain literally get taken over by other parts, mm-hmm. and uh, they get used up. And they, So, in fact, we, we have to have fairly strict criteria in our program. Um, of um, So we, we, pre- we really like to implant children as early as possible, um, which is really the importance of uh, early identification. And no child should leave the maternity ward really, in ideal circumstances, without an auto-acoustic emission being done. It's a simple test that can tell us if there's a problem. And we really would like to have been, be knowing by the time there's six months which way we're going. Uh, is it going to be for hearing aids? Is it, um, what, what do, they, do they need a cochlear implant? And um, essentially after four, the age of four, your chances of being, if you haven't had amplification before the age of four, adequate amplification, your chances of being of good speech and mainstreaming diminish drastically. Mm. Good heavens, that's fascinating. There's another question that's come through. Why do so many seniors have difficulty hearing even with um, with hearing aids? Okay, the problem with hearing aids, that's a really important question. The problem with hearing aids is that they're not really plug and play. 
they need a lot they will often need a lot of adjusting and they will often need a really caring audiologist who's going to take time to fit them and make sure that the the, the patient um, understands that the, the limitations of hearing aids is not going to be frustrated by things that it actually can't do and the fact that uh, hearing and background noise hasn't been completely mastered it's really a lot lot better um, the digitally programmed hearing aids are a lot better doing that but even a normal hearing person is going to have trouble in a noisy restaurant and uh, it needs a lot of care and um, and also they've got to use it and to get used to using it mm. and that sometimes people find very irritating that it's so not just could plug it, and play. And could it be the wrong frequency that they would have to have um, yeah, the, the, changed? Yeah, the hearing aids are programmed to your hearing loss. So they are, again, the digital hearing aids are very clever. You can program that hearing aid to the hearing loss that the patient has. Um, so the, what happens if the hearing loss actually deteriorates further? Well, that can be readjusted. The, you may have started off with a hearing aid that has a particular power, and you actually might need to upgrade it, but you probably need to have that hearing aid readjusted. And you need to spend a lot of time with the, the, the audiologist who's fitting it for you or the hearing and acoustician who's fitting it with you. Um, and it's, it's patience, and it's actually using it. Mm-hmm. So um, how many cochlear implants are you doing a year, would you say, more or less now? Um, it varies a lot um, from year to year. In our program so far, we've done probably just on just over 500 patients. Mm. And so in a year, because we have, th- we have three or four surgeons now, um, probably all together about 20, 20 to 30 a year, something like that. Is that so? And what the South African statistics of deafness, is it, can, do you know the stats compared to other countries? Ooh. The we don't we don't have the exact stats, um, but uh, we know that, um, and that's one of the problems of collecting data. Um, I know David Swanepoel in Pretoria, prof of, of audiology, there is doing a lot of work on on this type of thing. It's roughly um, people needing um, profoundly deaf people um, worldwide are probably one in one hundred twenty thousand births. Or, or, or members, or not birds, but members of the community, um, um, and then that devolves to people who are not profoundly deaf, who can manage with hearing aids, or people who can manage maybe just with surgery, and to uh, children who simply have glue ears and need medical medical management or need grommets. Mm, mm. But the cochlear implants is probably um, of the general population one in one hundred twenty thousand. Oh, okay. And now, see, you've also got fundraising for people who actually cannot afford a, a cochlear implant. How, how do they? How do you go about choosing? Um, well, what what criteria do you have well, for that? Well, the criteria. Um, well, first of all, the criteria for 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 choosing the patients is the same as the criteria we choose for anybody. You have to fit the criteria of the audi- audiological criteria. Failure where we're hearing aids no longer give adequate uh, rep- yeah, amplification. That's kind of the baseline thing, and um, we've we've been very um, privileged and, and really exceptionally lucky to be working with Brian Joffe 
um, um, from with when he was at Bidvest and now um, later on, um, to set up a the and obviously with Prime Media. I mean, this this started off with Jeremy Mansfield and and Terry Falkland at Prime Media with the Health for Life uh, Trust. Started as a, as a project of ninety four point seven and remains a project of ninety four point seven. I see Wack had uh, CDs. Some of those proceeds used to go his phone calls. Or yeah, he was a big part of our fundraising. Unfortunately, he's now decided to semigrate to Cape Town. Yeah. So we miss him dearly. Um, wish him well there. Um, and uh, so, again. Um, Fundraising was extremely difficult because these are large sums of money that we need. Um, we've had. We'll come back to that in a moment. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Discam Medical Monday, and I'm, my guest today is Dr. Morris Hockman, and we are talking about cochlear implants, and at the moment we're actually talking about fundraising, and can you just go over that again but just okay. let me first of all say anyone with questions SMS us on 34519 or WhatsApp us on 061-895-1019 and Dr. Hockman can be contacted at the Linksfield Clinic as well So to just continue we, we put together really a wonderful team of people who support us um, from uh, the from Netcare, um, the Netcare Linksfield Hospital, um, they 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 give us the, the admission and the theatre time, um, the uh, radiology, the diagnostic radiological services at Linksfield, uh, do the radiology, uh, which is a very specialised radiology to know where we're going. That's the roadmap. Um, every uh, every child we do has an MRI and a CAT scan. Adults maybe, or they have certainly have the CAT scan, but maybe the MRI as well. Again, expensive things, um, and we really appreciate their help. And I spend many hours with the radiologists, plaguing them. This is a very expensive, <laughs> very expensive procedure. Thing. If we need, uh, if we need um, uh, pathology, the pathology groups, Lancet and Ampath, will will join will join us. Hmm. Um, it's wonderful. So, so you've got a big team. We have working. a big team to make to make this work. What was an, what would an actual cochlear um, cost? It's the the device. The the current cost is uh, is around uh, two hundred and forty thousand rand Good for heavens. the implant itself, and um, and that's without all the testing and anything. specialists and underneath the theatres and everything. And, and and what we haven't spoken about yet is the audiologists and the speech therapists. Yes, can we speak about that? Yeah, because they are the critical members of this thing. Um, it's all very well for us to put to do the surgery and put the implant in, but without the patient learning to use it, then it actually doesn't doesn't work. So the audiologists who um, switch on, the first of all, there's the preoperative assessment, um, which is, can be quite extensive, uh, mainly the hearing aid trial. There, there, there are very specialized tests we do, um, and... The uh, at the switch on. First of all, audiologists are in theatre with us. We test the implant before we close to know that it's actually working. We've got a very clever device that does that for us, so we know it's actually working. <coughs> and the then three weeks post operatively, the implant is switched on. Each of the twenty-four or the twelve electrodes is individually 
um, switched on. You create a map of those electrodes, and that's a process that might be very rapid in an adult who's who's heard already, but may take a much, much longer time in a baby. Well, it must be very scary, actually, very. to suddenly have he- noise. It is. And, and so the reactions of a newborn baby, of, of a, well, they're not newborn, of a six-month or a year-old kitty can be very different from crying to blinking to smiling to mm. nothing. Um, and um, the occasional adult we will program switch on and they say, well, that's wonderful and they can hear and they hardly need anything more. But the majority of people need a few months of rehab. We've now got to learn that um, what the sound your brain has to relearn that these, this what the noise in their head is actually sound and the sounds become words. So the, does the audiologist help them? They help them, and then the the in the children, the absolutely critical part, and for some adults, is the speech therapy. Mm-hmm. So the audiologist has to has to create the sound awareness on which the audio, the speech therapist has to now teach the kitty. And that's incredibly important. And um, we also have a this, this, the Children's Communicating Center, which is the nursery school part of its university, where if it's possible, a lot of our kiddies go there and spend their, their nursery school years there. And um, a lot of them then will be able to be mainstreamed following that. You know, it's actually what you're saying. It requires a lot of empathy from everyone involved. Mm. Because, I mean, for the parents, it's, it must be a terrifying thing to realize that your child is is, uh, is deaf. And a letter came through from Justine Lever um, saying that when we were told that our 15-month-old baby Demi was diagnosed profoundly deaf, we felt a variety of emotions from confusion to fear to disbelief. The hardest part in the beginning for us was the fear of the unknown. Dr. Hockman, at this early stage, told us he would be able to restore this precious child's hearing. At this stage, this seemed like a very far-fetched dream, and eventually, but that eventually now has become a true reality. At this stage, it was evident that Demi needed bilateral cochlear implants. She had her first one at 18 months and her next one a year later. One doesn't realize that one needs to learn to hear before they can talk. In the first year, she could babble a word or two, and then it was a very slow process with intense speech therapy. Twice a week, it took her at least two to three years before she could actually talk. She now doesn't stop talking. The miracle is now Demi is 95% hearing because of these miracle cochlear implants. It's a long and hard road with a lot of emotions along the way and constant dedication by everybody. But at the end of this hard road, eventually there is light and constant progress progress that surprises me constantly. I'm eternally grateful to Dr. Hockman on the miracle surgery he did on Demi by giving her the gift of life to hear that she so richly deserves. And a big influential part of her journey has been her speech therapist, Almeri Scott. Without her assistance and dedication, Demi would certainly not be where she is today. Thank you so much, Justine. What a lovely letter. And I would like to actually ask you, how do you stop yourself from getting over-emotionally involved <laughs> with the parents and with the children? And you, Well, 
Sure, that's a difficult question. You actually don't. Uh, you are emotionally involved with all of them. Um, and and their outcomes are incredibly important to you. And <coughs> um, that He's coughing, by the way, because he picked up a cough from one of the children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this is the, this is the, the, the uniqueness of, of an implant program. Is that you are so involved that this the it's a community it's an implant community that uh, you're going to be they're going to be part of forever, and that's the first one of the first things that I when I have a parents with a with a newborn baby who who's is, we've diagnosed knows he is is a hearing problem, you have to allow those pa- parents to go through kind of a mourning mm-hmm. because this, this beautiful little baby is got is not as perfect as they thought. But you have to give them the, the hope that you can do things for it, and, and we now know that we can. And I make the point early on in, in, in these to the parents that this is going to be a life-changing thing for them. At, but the, at the same time, they've got the rest of their family, so they can't um, you know, ignore the rest of their family and let them suffer. And the whole family has to be involved in, in the rehab. And that our best results are not with our best kiddies. We don't know how right there or whatever in the beginning or what learning difficulties they might have or anything but our best results are with our best parents and 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 you know Demi's parents really uh, epitomized that mm-hmm. that kid and did her so well and her too. grandparents mm-hmm. they did so well because they had a, a, an amazingly supportive family where sound was was used every moment of the day and that's where you get your best results and that goes to our, you know, when you were talking about our, our, our implant program, our Here for Life Trust. One of the problems there is that we're dealing with a lot of people, a, a, a group who may not be that privileged to spend all mm. their time with their parent, with their mm. children. We're having to get up, you know, four o'clock in the morning to go and catch a taxi to be at work, and these are the 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 the, the, the things that we have to deal with to provide, try to provide that kind of stimulus to these kiddies that we do in our program that they don't lose out on that stimulus. And that's one of the, the when you're asking for criteria, you know, of how do you do it. So one of the criteria is that we must be reasonably sure that that the rehab's going to happen mm-hmm. and that um, that the child will will get will get the benefit of, of whatever the homes can, can offer them. And they can afford to do it and they can afford the taxi fare to bring the, the kitty to therapy. And that they can afford the batteries, and it's it's a um, it's a multifaceted, it's a, multi-fa- thing, it's a very multi psychosocial mm, thing, mm. Um, and that's why we are so grateful to to the support we've had um, in in setting up this program. And I'm sure the parents also need psychosocial um, assessment done on themselves mm. and how they're actually dealing with it. Because as you say, oh, yeah. it is a loss and it is a you know, coming to terms with, with something that they mostly would not understand. Mm. They, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, here's a beautiful kitty who they didn't expect to have this problem. And you have to give that support. Absolutely. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Hello, this is Sue Jackson, and I'm with Dr. Morris Hockman, and we're talking about hearing loss. It was actually cochlear implants, but it's gone on to hearing loss. 
And it's not, I think, what's come across very clearly from this this letter and from what you're saying, it is not the total end of the world, as frightening as it is. Someone once said to me that what people do not understand is that lip reading is actually exhausting. And, you know, I've given a lot of thought to it, actually, since then. And I should imagine it is because it's such concentration needed to lip read. It is. And, in fact, um, it is quite exhausting being deaf and trying to manage. And it, it adds another dimension, to which the rest of us don't really, you know, normal hearing people don't have. And um, just to mention, all of this is dealt with. And, and the, the ability to lip read by our audiologists and speech therapists. And what I, what I haven't me- yet mentioned to you <coughs> is that the, um, the, the audiological workup and the, the rehabilitation actually happens <coughs> at our Johannesburg Cochlear Implant Center, um, which is at the, in the Donnie, Donnie Gordon Hospital's consulting rooms. And that's a critical part of our program. And I was just thinking when you asked about the, the lip reading, those skills are honed there, and they they are taught. And if you lip reading, an older person is lip reading and using their hearing aids and learning body language to to read that. That's an incredible aid. And we have people who've taught themselves to lip read, mm-hmm. where you would have no idea that they are deaf. Is that so? so? You have an adult and even a child. You'll find that even a child who's got glue ears and many grommets. Um, well, hear better when they're looking at their parents. And you'll often ask a parent, have you noticed that your child's looking at you while they're talking, while you're talking to them? And they'll say, sometimes they actually turn their face. The kid will turn the parent's face so they can see. And the child instinctively has learned to read. That's amazing. And that was another thing that someone actually sent a message in saying that they just wish that if a person uh, would realize that if you're deaf, they're not, you're not going to hear them if they stand behind you. Sure. And we've got another, or they suddenly walk out the room with their back to you. You know, it's, 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 uh, they, they don't realize you're not going to hear. We've got a message that's come through. It says, Hi, Sue and Dr. Hockman. Thanks for an amazing show. Can you please repeat the part about younger children up to the age of six? Regarding their hearing and speech, it's from Sephora. Um, I should imagine it's about. Uh, I, I think Sephora. Maybe you, you're mentioning um, whether they can catch up from a young age yeah. up to six. Are they able they, to catch up on the hearing? It depends on how deaf they are. If if somebody's profoundly deaf, so let's start with the worst case scenario. If they're profoundly deaf, and by the time they're six, they are six. They've never had amplification. During the, because of this neuroplasticity concept, they would never really get to, to understand sound as, as speech. Um, it's highly unlikely. But if you uh, diagnose a child, and as often happens, we would ideally like to have somebody diagnosed by the age of six months. But often it's missed. And they, uh, we, we have a lot of people, a lot of kiddies who, who present to us when they're about um, uh, at two years old. And that we still get great results of that, even at even at three, um, particularly if, if they've had some hearing training and and some hearing aids. So it it's not an all or none thing. We look at each case individually, and each case is assessed individually. We don't just have automatic cutoffs and say no, never. We won't look at you. 
um, if every case will be assessed. Now, I have to cut you off. I'm really sorry, but we're going to have to get you back because quite a few, there are a lot more questions, actually. <laughs> but I would like to just end with uh, Ludwig van Beethoven. Um, he is probably the most famous deaf person, and he was a German pianist, and uh, he was he's regarded as the greatest classical composer ever. And he started to lose his hearing at the age of 26 with a suspected disease called typhus, and by the age of 52, he was presumed to be completely deaf. However, this is when he produced some of his most important works. As his hearing got worse, Beethoven struggled to communicate with people, and the biggest challenge for him was conducting and performing in concerts, as he couldn't hear when the music stopped Mm. and the audience applauded. His biggest achievements were his Beethoven's Ninth Symph- uh, Symphony, and which was composed after his hearing loss. And then one person that people uh, may know, uh, I'm, I'm, Craig is telling me to end, but I've just got to tell you this. Jane Lynch, she is an American actress who is fa- most famously known for award-winning win- TV series Glee. And uh, she is totally deaf in one ear, and um, and she's uh, she's been deaf since she was uh, seven. And uh, while she was playing with her bro- brother, it was it was um, she became stone deaf. But thank you so much, Doctor Hoffman. You. I think you've given people hope. And would you please come back another time and <laughs> discuss other questions sure. that I've actually had on Facebook? Thank Pleasure. you so much. Thank, thank, you. thank you, Craig. Thank